I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a London Review of Books podcast. 6th of January 2014. Though I've learned never entirely to believe in a film until it actually happens, it does seem likely that this autumn we will be shooting The Lady in the Van. This is the story of Miss Mary Shepherd, the elderly eccentric who took up residence in my garden in 1974, living there in a van until her death 15 years later. Maggie Smith played Miss Shepherd on the stage in 1999, and All Being Well will star in the film, with Nicholas Heitner directing. To date, I've written two drafts of the script, and I'm halfway through a third. The house where the story happened, 23 Gloucester Crescent in Camden Town, is currently lived in by the photographer Anthony Crawler, though many of my belongings are still there. This afternoon I go round to start the lengthy process of clearing out some of the books and papers so that it can be used for the filming. I first saw the house in 1968. Jonathan Miller lives in the same street and Rachel, his wife, saw the for sale sign go up. It belonged to an American woman who kept parrots, and there were perches in the downstairs room and also in its small garden. Slightly older than the other houses in the Crescent, like many of them it had been a lodging house, so every room had its own gas meter and some had wash basins. I did most of the decorating myself, picking out the blurred and whitewashed frieze in the drawing room with a nail file, a job that these days would be done by steam cleaning, though then I was helped by some of the actors in my first play, 40 years on, which was running in the West End. One of the actors was George Fenton, who was doing the music for the film, and another was Keith McNally, the proprietor of Balthazar. 15th of April Watch five minutes of Have I Got News For You, with Nigel Farage, the guest, and Ian Hislop and Paul Merton, their usual genial selves. I never quite understand why they're happy to sit on a panel with the likes of Farage, Boris Johnson, Jeremy Clarkson et al. Their reasoning would, I imagine, be that this gives them the opportunity to have fun at the expense of Farage and company, and so they do but the impression an audience comes away with is that actually nothing much matters and that these seemingly jokey demagogues are human and harmless and that their opinions are not really as pernicious as their opponents pretend. And even if they are, what does it matter, as politics is just a con anyway? Whereas Johnson, the biker part, doesn't seem to me to have a moral bone in his body and the batricoidal Farage likewise. So where's your sense of humour? It's only a joke. 18th of May Once upon a time, when one saw an old couple walking along holding hands, 
the thought was of Darby and Joan. Nowadays one just wonders which of them it is who has Alzheimer's. 15th of July Asked by Yorkshire Tea if I would like a quick jaunt to King's Cross Station to have my face modelled in cake and put on a plinth in the forecourt. It's not a distinction that is to be conferred on me alone, though Yorkshire Tea does not specify who my fellow modèle en gâteau might be. The late Freddie Truman, I would guess, Michael Parkinson possibly, and Alan Titchmarsh, who's so amiable he might even do it. A candidate for patisserie posterity would once have been that son of Yorkshire, Jimmy Savile, who seems made for marzipan. But not now. No cake for James. 7th of August, Oxford To Oxford and the Hollywell Music Room, where Bodley's librarian emeritus David Basie and I have a conversation about our time at Oxford in the 1950s. David and I were first aware of each other at the scholarship examination in Exeter College Hall in January 1954. The hall was bitter cold, but both of us managed to bag places near the open fire, where, sitting next to him, I envied his handwriting, which, unlike mine, was already adult and fully formed. He just remembers how much I wrote. I was halfway through my national service on the Russian course. David was a couple of years younger, and having won an exhibition, went off to Kenya as a second lieutenant in the King's African Rifles. As undergraduates, neither of us was entirely happy, both remembering how inadequately we were taught and how long it took us to learn how to teach ourselves. I briefly became a fairly hopeless tutor myself, eking out my research grant with pupils from Exeter and Magdalen, where I was appointed a lowly junior lecturer, and thus a member of Magdalen Senior Common Room. It was a daunting community, with A.J.P. Taylor, Gilbert Ryle and C.S. Lewis regularly met with on high table. I didn't have much small talk, but what was the point, as one seldom got a word in with Taylor, and had I had anything to chat to Ryle about, it would have been like chatting to Mount Rushmore. The food was delicious, but meals could be a nightmare. I remember once we had mince pie, but not, of course, the common individual variety, but a great dish of a pie, from which, having been handed a silver trowel by the scout, one had to cut oneself a tranche and manoeuvre it onto one's plate. Next came another scout, bearing a silver Bunsen burner, and a ladle, which a third scout filled with brandy, which one then had to heat over the burner until it produced a wavering blue flame, whereupon one poured it over the pie. A fourth scout then appeared, carrying a pitcher of cream, with which one doused the conflagration. It was a lengthy process, and one which deprived me of all appetite for the end product, particularly since, as the lowliest member of Common Room, I was served last, while Taylor, Ryle, Lewis et al., having long since finished, looked on with ill-concealed impatience. If anything cured me of wanting to be a don, it was this. 24th of September Open the paper this morning to find that the Dowager Duchess of Devonshire has died. 
has eventually died, I nearly wrote, since she was virtually turned to stone a few years ago and was only alive because of the loving care of her long-standing PA and friend, Helen Marchant, who kept her, smitten as she was, still looking as grand and handsome as ever, with nothing of the invalid about her, and, her silence apart, no hint of dementia. Nor did her home, the old vicarage at Enza, the old vic, as she called it, have anything of the sick-room about it, with nothing to suggest anything was wrong. Everybody called her Debo, but I was privileged not to do so, feeling when I first got to know her that our acquaintance was too brief for such familiarity, so ended up calling her Ms. Debo, while I was Mr. Allen. The darling of the spectator and a stalwart of the countryside alliance, she was hardly up my street, but when she wrote asking if I would write a preface for one of her books, I could not have been more flattered had she been Virginia Woolf herself, and I was soon eating out of her hand. Once the request was made, I knew there was no refusing, saying that the only woman I'd come across with a will of comparable iron was Miss Shepherd. Thereafter, Debo signed all her letters to me, D. Shepherd. I favoured postcards, looking out for any of grubby back streets, and sending them as yet another unsunned corner of the Cavendish estates. She was tough, kind, and above all, fun. The last time I saw her, when she was still herself, was in September 2010, at a reception at the Garrick for the launch of her book, Wait for Me. She was ninety then, but still sturdy, and she could not be restrained from climbing onto a chair to address the party and not a plain wooden chair either, but an upholstered job on which she balanced precariously while she talked to a room which by that stage in her life she could no longer see. By all accounts, the funeral was as brisk and sensible as her life, with no elegy and the hymn's old favourites that made for a good sing. Not wanting to set sail on a sea of cellophane, she banned all wrappings for the flowers. Unattributed, I lifted a detail of her life for my play, People. Years ago, a neighbour in London, Josie Baird, who'd worked at the British Museum copying their jewellery, was asked by Chatsworth to do the same for them. Debo told her to nose around the house to see if she could find anything worth reproducing. Josie opened a drawer and found some beads wrapped in old newspaper. Oh, yes said Debo, airily, I'm sure. It's the rosary of Henry VIII. 6th of October. The first morning of filming for the lady in the van, and I sit in what was once my study, the room now bare and cold, the walls plain plaster, just as it was when I first saw the house in 1968, though I've no memory of being shown it by the estate agent, which is an early shot in the film. Alex Jennings is playing me, and looks remarkably like, with no hint of the outrageous blonde there sometimes was in cocktail sticks when he played me on the stage. Now Sam Anderson, ex-history boy and star of Doctor Who, does the opening shot as a Jehovah's Witness. 
Does Jesus Christ dwell in this house? Alex Jennings. No. Try the van. 25th of October. At noon comes Paul Hoggart to record some impressions of his father, Richard, whose memorial meeting is at Goldsmiths next week. He talks about his and his brother's childhood in the shadow of the uses of literacy and how anyone meeting them would generally kick off by remembering what an impression the book had made on them, reminding me that on first meeting Simon Hoggart, I had done just that. I first read The Uses of Literacy in New York in 1963, not out of any sociological interest, but from homesickness. Marooned on Broadway with Beyond the Fringe, for me the book was a taste of Yorkshire, and more particularly of Leeds. It wasn't the Leeds I knew. We lived in Armley, which had some slums but was otherwise boring and comparatively genteel. Hoggart's Leeds was Hunslet, poorer, slummier, and an altogether more straitened environment, with Hoggart brought up by his grandmother and various aunties, in that respect not dissimilar to the upbringing of Carl Miller. Forget P.G. Woodhouse. For a working-class boy, aunties can be no bad thing. Before I read The Uses of Literacy, had I had any thoughts of writing my own childhood safe, dull and in a loving family, was enough to discourage me. My life, it seemed to me, was not conducive to literature, but it was reading Hoggart's close account of his growing up in Hunslet that changed my mind. Many years later, Hoggart wrote asking to interview me for a TV series he was doing. To my lasting regret, I turned him down, thinking, as I often do with interviews, yet I would at last be found out. So I wrote back saying how much his work meant to me, but we never met, though he would often send me copies of books. Paul Hoggart tells me that late in his life his father felt he was a failure and that he ought to have been a novelist. Sad though this is, I can see why, and how a book as romantic as The Uses of Literacy could lead on to literature as reading it did with me. It has some wonderful Hardy-esque moments, Hoggart at one point standing on the edge of Holbeck Moor, the moors of Leeds, it should be said, as much cinder patches as haunts of heather, and looking across to see the great bulk of his school, Coburn High School, lit up in the dusk and freighted with all those hopeful souls like himself, passengers on a liner waiting to sail away to a better future. I quoted to Paul Hoggart something I'd come across the day before in one of D.J. Enright's commonplace books, Injury Time. Richard Hoggart has written of the scholarship boys of his and my generation, like homing pigeons to a loft we knew only from hearsay, we headed for the humanities and, above all, for literature. I'm happy to have been one of those pigeons. 28th of November. We travel regularly on the East Coast Line. It's hugely expensive, as what line isn't, but that apart it's a very good service. Generally punctual, the staff, some of whom we've got to know, cheerful and obliging, and sometimes engagingly silly, 
making train travel as pleasant as it can be these days. For the last five years, the line has virtually been nationalised, with its profits going to the public purse, and there is no economic reason why this state of affairs should not continue. But just as in the last months of his government, John Major made haste to privatise, disastrously, the railways, so this contemptible administration has sold off the line yet again, this time to Stagecoach and Virgin. There's no way this can be presented as being in the public interest. It's putting yet more money in private pockets already well-lined from previous deals. It's ideology masquerading as pragmatism. I've always thought Branson a bit of a pillock, and presumably, if they're as gay unfriendly as they ever were, stagecoach isn't much better. The prudes and the pillock. I look forward to the logo. 16th of December I've never much wanted a dog, feeling life is quite complicated enough. Rupert craves one, and other people's dogs always like him, as they seldom do me. Today I'm coming along Regent's Park Road, past the Delicatessen, when a woman stops me, wondering if I would mind holding a dog while she goes in and gets some pasta. It's a dachshund, and harmless-looking, so I stand there, holding the lead of this, to me, entirely unsuitable dog as people go by, and whether they're being friendly to me or to the dog or to the pair of us together, stop and chat, as I suppose dog owners do. Except, I have to explain, it's not my dog at all, and should we ever get a dog, it certainly wouldn't be a dachshund. Though actually the dog is sweet and affectionate, licking my hand and nuzzling me, much in the way Hockney's famous Stanley does, or did. In a short story, the owner would never come back, leaving me and the dog to make a life together. But here she is, having got her pasta, and duly grateful. I knew I could rely on you, because you're from the north. Rupert is, of course, delighted by this incident, seeing it as a possible chink in my armour. I think not. Thanks for listening. For more, go to lrb.co.uk.